you would please open your Bibles to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. As is often the case, we will come to our text later in the sermon. For five Sundays now, we've been studying the matter of the fear of the Lord. And yet I would argue for all our studies, one could argue that the fear of the Lord seems counterintuitive. Or to be more plain spoken, it doesn't seem to make sense. And just consider the following verses. You who fear the Lord, praise him. If I feared him, why would I praise him? The Lord confides, confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. Psalm 135, O house of Levi, praise the Lord. You who fear him, praise the Lord. And then in Proverbs, do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. It may not seem to make sense to us, but in fact, as we've seen, the fear of the Lord is found throughout Scripture, beginning in Genesis and going all the way through Revelation. And the fear of the Lord includes not only that which we normally think of with fear, dread, and terror, but reverence and awe and respect. If we are to have the fear of the Lord, we need to have a correct view of who God is, a sense that God is always present with us, and a constant awareness of what our duties or our obligations are to him. For those of us who are Christians, we need to realize that the fear of the Lord is a promise that is made as a blessing of the new covenant, and we are people of the new covenant. And so this is something that God has promised to us. It is God's work in our lives. It is a work of grace. And as we saw last week, the fear of the Lord is the holy soil that produces a godly life. If we want to be the people God wants us to be, but we don't want to have the fear of the Lord, that's not going to happen. A corollary to that, by the way, is the absence of the fear of the Lord is the unholy soil which produces an ungodly life. And without being too personal, have you noticed in your life that as you sort of begin to go off track, if you would sit down and sort of do a diagnostic, if you will, so self-diagnostic, you would come to see that the reverence, the fear of the Lord is something that has declined in your life and therefore your behavior has reflected that. Today we come to the last sermon in this series. And what I want to talk about is how to maintain and increase the fear of the Lord in our lives. Let's begin by establishing sort of a fundamental, a foundational principle. The focus of our conscious spiritual efforts is to be the very thing that God declares to be the result of his work in us. Let me say that again. The focus of our conscious spiritual efforts are to be the very things that God declares to be the results of his own work. Let me see if I can explain. Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 5, something that I think we're familiar with, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. When we see in ourselves, but when we see in others, someone who exhibits genuine, selfless Christian love, we may, in fact, attribute that love to the work of the Spirit in that person's life. It is a deep, inward, powerful work of the Spirit that causes a person to have these graces. The fruit of the Spirit is love, we are told. 
means that it is the manifestation, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I think this is clear. I mean, I, think, I don't think any of you would argue with me with regard to this. When we see genuine joy and peace and the other graces that Paul mentions, we are seeing the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. And yet, when we go to Galatians chapter 3, Paul tells them, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. It's like, Paul, I'm confused. I know Galatians was written before Colossians. Have you changed your mind? In Galatians, you're saying, in fact, that this is the work of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. And now to the Colossians, you're saying, put these things on. So, Paul, which is it? If these these graces are present in our life, is it because of the Spirit? Is it the fruit of the Spirit in our life? Or is it because we have put these things on? To which the answer is yes. It isn't an either-or, it's a both-and. We saw this in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Is it God's working, or is it my working? And the answer is, again, yes. When God works in us, we're not puppets. He isn't pulling strings and somehow we're acting as he would have us to act. He isn't sort of giving us an electric shock and then we we do what we're supposed to do. God works in us, I think, in a way that is completely mysterious. We're not always conscious of it. But when we choose to do right, it is God's working in us, but it is essential that we choose to do what is right. And so Paul tells the Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This principle is critical if we are to maintain, if we are to increase the fear of the Lord in our lives. We've seen already in this series that the fear of the Lord is one of the blessings of the new covenant, one of the promised blessings of the new covenant. So, in that light, one might argue, well, Damon, if it's a promised blessing, then I really don't have to do anything. God is just going to sort of plunk the fear of the Lord into my life and I'll be fine. That's not how it works. The principle is this. What God says is his work in us is to be the focus of our conscious labors and efforts. We aren't just to be passive and say, okay, Spirit, bring it on. Give me the fruit of the Spirit. Or, God, give me the fear of the Lord. He does do that. It is one of the promised blessings. But we are also to strive to maintain and increase the fear of the Lord. Now, with that in mind, I don't give you sort of a, a list of things that we can or should do um, to maintain, but also to increase the fear of the Lord in our lives. The first is to be certain that you have a part or an interest in the new covenant. We're told, as I said well, several times already, that it is one of the promised blessings from uh, uh, Jeremiah 32. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. And I will inspire them to fear me, so that they will never turn away from me. The ESV has 
and I will put the fear of me in their hearts. One of the results of the new covenant is that we have reverence, respect. We have the fear of the Lord. And it stands in contrast to what we looked at last week in Romans 3. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul is quoting from Psalm 31. Unless we come to God through Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, based on the eternal covenant and that alone, we will not have the fear of the Lord. In fact, our lives will be characterized by the absence of the fear of the Lord. It is by the grace of God that we have come into the new covenant. We need to make sure that we have a part and an interest in that. The second thing that we should do is feed our minds on scripture in general. Not merely those passages that speak about the fear of the Lord. Now we come to our text here in Psalm 19. And in the first part of this psalm, we find a celebration of what has been called the two books of Revelation. The first is general revelation, the revelation of God as seen in creation. And if you'll follow along as I read the first six verses of this psalm, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. Here the psalmist tells us, David tells us, this is God's revelation of who he is as seen in creation. But then in the next few verses, he speaks of special revelation That is, God's revealing himself in Scripture. And notice as I read this, what David does. He uses different words to describe the word of God, and he describes its effect on God's people. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. And to skip down a bit, the ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. But you may have noticed something, and that is in the midst of this. In verse number 9 we read, The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. It doesn't seem to belong there. What is David saying? What is the point he's trying to make? I think that what David is saying is that there is something we cannot divide, we cannot separate the relationship between the special revelation of God in Scripture and the fear of the Lord. So much so that as he's talking about God's word, and he refers to it as the law of God, the statutes of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commands of the Lord, the ordinances of the Lord, David has no problem speaking of the fear of the Lord. It is for him, a synonym for the word of God. What is David telling us? If one is going to have the fear of the Lord as he or she should, he or she must feed their mind on the word of God. The word of God is so productive of the fear of the Lord that in fact we can use the fear of the Lord and scripture almost interchangeably as David does in this psalm. 
Paul wrote to the Colossians, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts. We are to expose ourselves to Scripture privately, publicly, daily. Uh, years ago, Tom uh, said, used the phrase that we should soak ourselves in Scripture. And if we do that, I think we will come to have a sense of the fear of the Lord. Now, please understand, there are many passages in Scripture that do not address the issue of the fear of the Lord. One could argue that there's no direct influence on maintaining and increasing the fear of the Lord in your life. But the overall effect of Scripture is, in fact, to do just that. So if you look at verses 10 and 11 of Psalm 19, they are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. This is Scripture. And if we are to have the fear of the Lord as we should, then we need to know Scripture. And Just a side note. Um, for those of us who have been Christians for a long time, or raising Christian families, I think it's easy. Uh, we have come to a point where, I want to put this nicely, but Scripture becomes sort of blasé. I mean, it's just, we've heard it so many times. Um, it almost becomes boring. I think we need to understand that if we are going to have reverence for God, we need to look at the revelation of God. There are two revelations. One is in creation and one is in scripture. And we need, we need, it is precious, precious, more precious than gold or than fine honey. Um, and if we would, in fact, have the fear of the Lord, we need to soak ourselves in God's word. The third thing that I would encourage you to do is to feed your mind on the reality of the forgiveness of sins. God has forgiven you. We've heard in this series from Psalm 130, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? This is an admission that if God were, in fact, to keep account of all the sins that we have committed, and then we were summoned into his presence to give an account, we would not be able to stand. But as we've seen, the psalmist does not end there. But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. When we discover that the great and mighty God, holy and just, who is omniscient, actually has forgiven our sins. And it isn't just like, that's a small thing, we're just like, yeah, okay. Go and sin no more, type of deal. But in fact, all of his attributes are involved in this process of bringing forgiveness. It is because of this that we have been granted pardon and full acceptance. I think if we would think about that, it would in fact inspire a fear of the Lord. I would argue that the degree to which the fact and wonder of forgiveness sink, or they, that's perhaps not the right word, but they come into your being, into your mind, into your soul, to your awareness, is the degree to which you will fear the Lord. Again, for many of us who are raised in Christian homes, we've been Christians for a long time, I think forgiveness is something that it's like we don't, you know, 
we almost wish that we had lived wicked lives and then we could ask God for forgiveness and then he forgives us and we could sort of rejoice that he has forgiven us. Uh, all sin is sin and God has forgiven us. And if we think on that, if we would consider the reality that the God who is holy and righteous has actually forgiven me all of my sins, I think that the fear of the Lord would increase in our lives. Why did the second person of the Trinity come and live among us? Why did he die a shameful death on the cross? So that we might be forgiven. There is a familiar verse in Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The next verse, I think, is much less familiar. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. We should bask in the mystery of God's forgiveness and stand amazed at such an dis- amazing display of grace. The fourth thing I think we should do is to learn to feed on the majestic greatness of God, that we worship a great God. I mentioned in the first sermon on the series that we read about those who have been victorious over the beast and the image of the beast and over the number of his name. They are given harps by God. This is from Revelation 15. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. What is mentioned here? God's greatness, his holiness, his power, his righteousness, his rule over all things. And thus we hear them singing, Who will not fear you, O Lord? If we are to grow in the fear of the Lord, I think we need to feed ourselves on the greatness of who God is. Isaiah 40 would be a good place to start. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. Um, I'd encourage you to do that, but let me just read to you some verses from that chapter. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, Here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket and weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him or who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? 
Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. How majestic and great and awesome is our God. And if we would meditate on God's greatness, it would increase our reverence for and our fear of the Lord. Number five. Seek to cultivate an awareness of God's presence. In Psalm 16, David says, I have always, or I've set the Lord always before me. And I think what David is saying is in every situation, he places God before him. That is, there is an awareness that whatever he does, wherever he is, God is there with him. He realizes that he is in the very presence of God. By contrast, several Psalms later, Psalm 54, David wrote, For strangers have risen against me, ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. That is to say, he says God is always before him. He has an awareness of God's presence. He has the fear of the Lord as a result. Whereas these wicked men, these ruthless men, they do whatever they want because God is not in their thinking. If God is feared, it is as a God who is near and who is remembered David in Psalm 139 spoke of God's presence. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Just remember that it's not an either or proposition. That either God does this for this or we do it for ourselves. It is both and. We are in fact to seek to cultivate an awareness of God's presence. At the same time, we are to pray that God would make his presence clear to us in every moment of every day, in every situation. Number six, seek to cultivate the consciousness of your obligations to God. We saw this earlier in the series, that we are to love him supremely, we are to obey him implicitly, we are to trust him completely. I think we get tired of this frankly. And when we do, then the fear of the Lord is something that merely slips away. We no longer have a reverence for God, a worshipful attitude toward God. We no longer praise God. We just do whatever it is we want. Two more things and then I'll be finished. Number seven, associate closely with those who walk in the fear of the Lord. Psalm 119, I am a friend to all who fear you to all who follow your precepts. The psalmist is telling God that he has deliberately chosen as his closest associates those who fear the Lord. That is, the reality of the fear of the Lord is observable in their behavior. You can tell that these people fear the Lord because of how they live. They follow your precepts. In personal relationships, it has been suggested there is the power of imitation, absorption, and contagion. And so we are to take care of those we associate closely with. This is not to say that we cannot have unbelievers as friends or even close friends. In 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul is dealing with the the problem of immorality in the Corinthian church, he writes the following, I have written you in my letters not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. Paul wants to make it clear to the Corinthians they are not to withdraw from society. 
But then he goes on to write, But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler, with such a man do not even eat. That is to say, if somebody claims to be a believer, that is to be a person of the new covenant, a child of God, but they live as though they have no fear of God, then do not associate with such a person. Because the absence of the fear of God may in fact contaminate you and you will find yourself slowly but surely losing the fear of the Lord in your life. There's a wonderful passage in Malachi. I think Malachi is one of those books that is neglected. But in chapter 3, God accuses and charges the majority of his people for the wrong they are doing. But then in verse 16, this wonderful verse, then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. And the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. Those who feared the Lord talked with each other. If we are to choose the people we associate with who are the people of God, they should be those who have the fear of the Lord. There's something else, though, that I want to mention in this regard. We fool ourselves if, in fact, we think we can make it on our own. The call to be a Christian is not the call to be an individual, but to be a part of the family of God, the people of God. If we are to grow in the fear of the Lord, then we must associate ourselves with others who walk in the fear of the Lord. Not in a superficial relationship, but of some depth. Lastly, number eight. We are to fervently pray for an increase of the fear of the Lord. Interestingly enough, I think we know this passage. James James tells his readers, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Wait a minute, James says, if we lack wisdom, haven't we been told time and time again the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? If, in fact, we are to have wisdom, if we are to have the fear of the Lord, we should look to God. We should ask Him that He would give us, He would increase and maintain in us the fear of the Lord. We hear again from David in Psalm 86. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Prayer, I think, should be a critical part of our seeking to maintain and increase in the fear of the Lord. I don't think it's enough to soak ourselves in Scripture. We should do that. But there should be prayer as we look to God and ask that he would, in fact, give us the fear of the Lord. In the book of Hebrews, the writer, the author, who, interestingly enough, is nameless, is trying to persuade uh, Jewish Christians. And these are people in the first century. So the old covenant is, is passing away. The new covenant has come into existence And they seem to be vacillating, going back and forth. They're wavering. And he writes this so that they would continue in the faith and they might enter the full and final rest of eternal life. He keeps talking about entering into God's rest. 
in chapter 12, there's 13 chapters in the book, but in chapter 12, he's already begun to wind down after chapter 11, the book or the chapter on faith. And again, he does what he's been doing throughout the whole book. He contrasts the old covenant with the new covenant. In verse 18, he says, you have not come to the mountain that can be touched. But then in verse 22, he says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. There is more, but I would simply point out the exhortation at the end of the chapter. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The King James, by the way, says that we serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Verse 29, God is a consuming fire, is taken from Deuteronomy 4. The author leaves out the last part of the verse. Your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. I think the point that the writer is trying to make is not that we are to live in terror or dread. But we are to worship God with reverence and awe because we have an awareness of who he is, what he has done for us. I think where we should begin is who God, with who God is. And for many of us, I think this means sitting down and meditating and thinking, who is God exactly? There may need to be some major corrections here. It may be that somehow God has diminished in our sight. We see God as someone that we can manipulate, um, some type of divine vending machine that we put in our prayers and he gives us the things that we want. If we read through scripture, we begin to have a sense, this is who God is. He is the Lord God Almighty. And it is appropriate that we reverence him, that we praise him, and that we have the fear of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are human. We tire easily. We bore easily. Even things that are precious may become too familiar to us and we lose sight of reality. We've seen in this series that the fear of the Lord is critical in our lives. It's found throughout Scripture. It's one of the promised blessings of the New Covenant. But in today's world, it just sounds medieval. It sounds archaic. It, it doesn't seem to make sense. May your spirit do his work in our lives. But may we, as your people, seek to meditate on scripture, to read it and to know it, and to pray, to associate ourselves with people who seek to fear the Lord. May we as a congregation be marked by the fear of the Lord. I thank you that you brought us together this day. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place.
And as I'll be gone for a few Sundays, I commit this congregation into your keeping, which is where they've always been. Pray for those who will be speaking, that you would give them, even now as they begin to prepare uh, thoughts, uh, direction in their uh, preparation, but then as they speak, the words to say. As we walk through the world in the coming week, may we have a sense of your presence. May we have the fear of the Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.